may be seated. Will you listen as you sit still at the beginning of our message this morning? Will you listen as I read what it must be one of the most incredible passages in all the Bible? It's Jonah chapter 3. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly wicked and an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. For everyone, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish." And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And I say, wow. The worst of the worst. The most despicable people group. Abusive of power, arrogant, heinously wicked, And God sends a man to warn them. And I know he had a little trouble getting there the first time. It's a good reminder that he's a God of second chances. And Jonah, cooperating after three days in the belly of the great fish, shows up at this huge, powerful city-state with ironclad walls, essentially. Walks a day's journey in and takes three total days walking throughout the city, crying out against it, the message that God gave him to repent. Wouldn't it be something if somebody would begin to walk across our country and begin crying out for people to repent and they would actually pay attention, they would actually grieve over their sin and they'd actually fall on their face before the Lord, our, our president would become convicted and he would establish a decree and our entire nation would turn to God. And we say that will never happen. I say if it happened in Nineveh, it can happen anywhere. If it happened in Nineveh, it can happen anywhere. Although you know as well as I know that if there's ever a nation that could give Nineveh a run for its money, it's the United States of America. You cannot do the things we do. You cannot call the wicked things good that we call good that are wicked and think that somehow you're a morally superior nation. You're not. You are, you are just a thread away 
from falling into the judgment of God, just like Nineveh was. Well, I have a friend, uh, his name is Tom Harris. He was here last week for the 9.30 service. I met him a year ago in the parking lot at Bob Iwig's church in Noblesville, Indiana. I was looking out the door. I was going to preach as a guest speaker on my way to the IFCA convention, and we were enjoying Bob and Diane at that time. Diane is now with the Lord. And I looked through the door, and coming across the parking lot was this guy in his biker spandex with a little cart behind his bike, and he stopped by the church sign, and I saw him go over by the church sign, wasn't sure what he did. Then he came in, and he came in, and he looked around, and nobody went and talked to him. So I went and talked to him, and I thought he was a little bit of a different guy, and uh, I began to talk to him. His name is Tom Harris, and he found out I was from Harper's Ferry, and he said, well, I'll be out in your place in about four weeks, and sure enough, he came across our parking lot. He stopped by our sign. I said, what are you doing? He said, "Um, I'm anointing church signs with oil, and I'm praying for God to revive his church. I'm not going to criticize him. He lives in Seattle, Washington, and he rides his bike. And last summer was the third time, and he he ends on the Capitol steps at the United States Capitol in downtown Washington, D.C., and he prays over our Capitol. Then he gets on a plane and goes home to his wife. This summer is the fourth time that he's done it. And he was just through here last Sunday. I was not here. He left a voicemail on my phone, and I talked to some people who saw him. Do you think that God could bring revival to his church in America and bring salvation to the sinful population of America. I think that if he does, in our world today of technology and sophistication, I think a street crier like Jonah is not well received. I'm not saying God can't use it, There have been some wonderful testimonies of men like like, um, uh, the pastor of McLean Bible Church who, while he was in university at Duke University, a street crier proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ led Lon Solomon to Christ. He's had a tremendous impact for God. There are many stories like that. But for us to see God do a countrywide working of turning the hearts of our people to him, I'm suggesting this morning that the only way that's going to happen is if a committed, obedient, pure church is given to praying for that. Apart from that, it will never happen. Our text this morning is largely from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Before we go there, though, will you please turn to Psalm 34? And as you position your notes, um, let's just... Um, lay a foundation with the first part of our message here, reminding ourselves that we are in a sermon series this summer on prayer. Uh, Did you appreciate the ministry from the pulpit of of Dr. Shupi the last couple weeks? I hope so. Uh, I've listened to one and a half so far, and what a blessing, a gift to our church Jim Shupi is, and I affirm his ministry. And if you haven't listened to those sermons, one on the priority of prayer, the other on the problems with prayer, and why doesn't God answer our prayers, you need to listen to them. They will challenge your thinking and bless your heart. And we're going to continue that today as we think about praying for our nation. God's church praying for the needs of a sinful nation, the United States of America. I think this is appropriate on this Independence Day weekend celebration. I think it is also appropriate for us to conclude our service today as a church 
reminding ourselves and remembering God's faithfulness through Jesus Christ and our great salvation by partaking of communion. So keep that in mind that we will conclude with the elements of the broken bread and the cup, reminding ourselves of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood that cleanses us from all sin. But as we begin here this morning, let's remind ourselves that prayer for national healing is foundational to every believer's prayer life. Every believer's prayer life should be established on praying for our nation. You see, we have a tendency to have kind of a sidebar that we get to once in a while in our praying, and that uh, on occasion we will remember to pray specifically for our nation. But let me remind you of a text. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Dr. Shupi used this in his priority of prayer message, And you'll recall that the Apostle Paul begins in that text by saying, first of all, so of first importance, let me remind you that prayers and supplications be made for all people, remember that, for all people, and and for those kings and people in authority, so that, remember he goes on to say, so that we might live a peaceable life and so that more people might come to Christ. Isn't that interesting? We pray for our rulers that they will be just and righteous so that they will rule justly so that we will have the blessing of God so that we will have a peaceful, prosperous nation so that the gospel can more effectively go forward. Isn't that interesting? That's what Paul says in that passage. So foundational to every believer's prayer life should be praying for national healing, for repentance, for our kings and rulers and our governors. So we should regularly be praying for President Trump. We should be regularly praying for Governor Justice. That's part of the foundation of our prayer life. I also, though, in Psalm 34, recognize in these verses and want to prompt you in our prayer series that every time we pray, and this is our hope as we pray for our nation, that every time we pray, we pray in faith, believing That God sees us, he hears us, he cares about us, and he will move in response to our prayers. Let's read Psalm 34 and review that. Psalm 34, beginning with verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Let me reread verse 18. It's possible someone here this morning really needs that verse. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But what I want to point out here is that foundational to our prayer life, as we talk about this whole summer series of prayer, as we seek as a church to become a praying church, as we seek as individuals to make prayer a priority, every time we pray, do we not pray in faith, believing that God sees us and what's going on in our world? Look what he says in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. The Lord sees us. Not only that, but God hears us. Number two, look at the end of verse 15. And the ears of the Lord is toward their cry. Isn't that interesting? Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. 
So number one, when we pray, it's foundational to our prayer life that we believe, number one, that God sees. And what in the world must God see every second of every day around the globe, in every city, in every countryside? It's unbelievable. I think about the men in our church who are policemen and in law enforcement and how they come home at night and how sometimes I wonder how they clear their minds and cleanse their themselves. They must have to take a mental shower, a spiritual shower to wash away the sin they've been dealing with that day, the things they've seen that are unspeakable all in a day's work. And then I think how much more what God sees every second of every day. He sees the wicked. He sees the righteous. I quote it regularly, Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He sees. That's foundational to our praying, isn't it? That God sees me. Not only that, that he hears my prayer. And then not only that, that he cares. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And then he delivers them. Because why? Because he cares about what we're dealing with. And fourthly, we learn from verse 17 that he moves. He delivers them out of all of their trouble. God sees, God hears, God cares, God moves. That's the foundation of faith in praying, isn't it? If you don't believe that, you won't pray. And that's the only way we can enter into praying for a nation like ours. You can't fix the school systems. You can't fix the welfare system. You can't fix the corrupt judicial systems. You can't fix the warped, distorted morality or amorality or anti-morality of our nation, of what's even being taught in our schools. You can't fix that. And more and more, people who stand for what is right and what is just and what is moral are marginalized, even attacked. You can't fix that. And so we must pray, believing that God sees us and sees this and sees our need. He hears what's happening. He hears our prayers. He cares about it, and he will move. He will move, and we believe that. Prayer for national healing is foundational. It's foundational to every believer's prayer life, and it's foundational to every believer's faith that we believe that God sees, hears, cares, moves. Now we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If you'll turn there with me. This is in the Old Testament historical books. And let me just read a little bit of this text. We're jumping into the middle of quite a story here. Uh, We're dealing with a king here. His name is Solomon. He is David's son. And he has just completed building God's temple, Solomon's temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. If you want to read about it in detail, uh, and it is uh, just uh, unbelievable, this project that he did, it is detailed in 1 Kings chapter 6. Not only did he build a huge temple for God, a place of worship. Now remember that David, his father David, who killed Goliath, David, uh, Solomon was... David's son with Bathsheba. He was the third king of Israel, right before it was divided, ruled for 40 years. That David stockpiled incredible wealth to build a temple to God. He had a heart for God. David was a man after God's heart, but because he was a man of war and had blood on his hands, God said, you're not going to build the temple. Your son Solomon will build the temple. And the first 20 years of Solomon's reign, he built God's temple, and he built his palace. 
His palace was a spectacular construction as well, and that is detailed in 1 Kings chapter 7. So the God's temple is detailed in 1 Kings 6. Solomon's palace is detailed in 1 Kings 7. It is worthwhile to stop and read that. So what happens here? Solomon is ruling and reigning, and he's calling the people. This is early in the front half of his of his reign as king over Israel, and he still was a, um, largely a righteous man. It was before his heart had turned away from God, and he married many foreign women, and he had then began to worship foreign gods and false gods, and God removed his blessing from Solomon and ultimately removed the kingdom from him and divided the kingdom because of Solomon's great sin. But at this point, let's read in chapter 7, beginning with verse 11, and notice what it says. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. So he finished the temple. By the way, this temple where the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people worshipped in the Old Testament, is the temple that would have been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian takeover. That would have been the time when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know them by their pagan Babylonian names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that was when they were taken into captivity. The Babylonians raised the temple. They bulldozed it down flat, destroyed it completely, Solomon's temple, essentially. All right? So that's when that temple was destroyed. Then Herod later built another temple. Then that one was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And now there is no more temple to this day. So Solomon finished the temple, the house of the Lord, and the king's house, that's his palace. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Okay, let's just stop there and turn the page to chapter 6, all right? And look at verse 12. And here's the prayer that God is referencing right here. Okay? You staying with me? So we have a king. His name is Solomon. He's built a temple. He's built a palace. And now the temple at work is all done. All of his projects were completely successfully accomplished, we just read. And in chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, verse 12, it says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands, and Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and he had set it in the court, and he stood on it, and then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven, and he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servant who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared with him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. Back to chapter 7. And let me just tell you the scene. You see the scene. All the congregation of Israel is assembled. He's built this bronze platform. The king in all of his splendor, Solomon was a splendid king. He gets up on that platform. He kneels down facing God's temple and he begins to pray. And the prayer of chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles is a long dedicatory prayer. We're going to look at it a little bit more in just a minute. In response to Solomon's prayer, In chapter 7, God then says, let's go back to chapter 7 where we're reading. I probably could have thought of a harder way to lay this out, couldn't I? 
Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, and he successfully accomplished it. Verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So when God says right here that he has heard Solomon's prayer, it is in response to the dedicatory prayer of chapter 6. And God says, I have received your sacrifice. Let your eyes go over to verse 4 of chapter 7 and look at the sacrifice that Solomon made at the dedication of God's temple that he built. Then the king, verse 4, 2 Chronicles 7, then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. (laughs) That's unbelievable. And now God is responding to all of this. Let's pick it up. The middle of verse 12. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I who am in heaven, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive. He sees and he hears to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Let's just stop right there. And so we have this verse that is quite familiar to us. It's verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Roman numeral two in our outline, I want to remind you from this verse, number two, that prayer for national healing is conditional. Prayer for national healing is conditional. I want you to notice that this is an if-then conditional prayer. Solomon says, God says in response to Solomon's prayer, if my people call by my name, humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wickedness, then, if then, it's a conditional prayer. Second thing I want to remind you about this, you don't have a place to write this in your notes, but I want you to get this in your head, that this was not said by God to his church, it was said by God to Israel about his temple. In fact, when Solomon prayed in chapter 6, he repeatedly used that phrase that then you will hear from heaven when we pray facing this temple. You will hear from heaven and, and you in heaven will hear and you will respond. When you think about Daniel, I just referenced him, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3, when he has risen in political power and prestige under Nebuchadnezzar, and the satraps and so forth and the governors get jealous of his power. They create a law against him. And the only way they can get him in trouble is with the laws of his God. And they figure out that, that they get Nebuchadnezzar to pass a law that people can only pray to the king. Because three times a day, Daniel goes up to his room, opens the door facing this temple. It's based on Solomon's prayer in chapter 6 that when, when, you fit, when your people, even if they're taken away, face this temple and pray, they will hear from heaven. That's why Daniel did that, because of Solomon's prayer, because of this passage. And then you will hear from heaven. Well, they got him arrested because he prayed 
to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not to the king. But that's why Daniel did that. So here we are, and we have this conditional reality in God responding to his people, and it is stated to Israel, not the church. So here's what I want to be careful to point out. This verse is given first and foremost in its context to Israel, and it's special for God's people. But there is a principle here. There is a principle that applies to his church. In fact, don't we as his church call ourselves God's people? We are God's people. So let's look at the verse because there are three key terms that we need to understand in understanding the verse. This conditional prayer for national healing is based, number one, on identity. It's based on identity. This is an assurance that is given to God's people. It's not given to anybody else. It's given to God's people. Look what he says. If my people who are called by my name. So number one is identity. It's an assurance that is given to God's people. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what Proverbs chapter 15 verse 29 says. Listen to what it says. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Isn't that interesting? The Lord is far from the wicked. Now, God is everywhere present at all times, right? But it's a, a manner of speaking that when people are wicked, he, he, he doesn't come close to them in responding to them. But the righteous, the prayer of the righteous, he responds to. He's near to that. So identity matters. God responds to his people. Secondly, I want you to see the second key word is humility. Look what he says. If my people, that's identity, will humble themselves, that's humility. This is a required attitude because God says that he lifts up the humble, but he takes down the pride, the, the proud. So we must be a humble church. Thirdly, the key word is purity. Look what he says. If my people, that's identity, will humble themselves, that's humility, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that's purity. When we pray, we come to God with clean hands and a clean heart. This is necessary for God's work. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We cannot be a church that disregards sin. We cannot be an unclean church. It's partly why we're going to end with communion today. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gives instruction to the Corinthian believers. And that church was a mess. He reminds them that when they come together to the Lord's Supper, to the Lord's table, and partake of communion, that they are to examine themselves and make sure, number one, that they're in the faith. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you been to the cross? Have you been washed in the blood of Christ? Secondly, do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? God's people are to be a sin-free people. It doesn't mean that we don't sin day to day. That's 1 John 1, 9, isn't it? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, we count on that regularly, don't we? But do you care about sinning? Do you care about the purity of your life? That's what God's talking about here. If my people, identity, will humble themselves, humility, a required attitude to approach God, We'll pray. That's the topic of our summer sermon series. That's our only hope in our own lives and in America. We'll remove wickedness. That's purity. And that's a necessity for God to do his work. Then I want you to see quickly that God says then, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I take it based on that, that there's hope for America. 
I take it based on that, that if God's people would be broken, that we would be humble, that we would be pure, and we would be praying that God could choose to turn things around here. That's hard for us to imagine. Wouldn't it be something if our president one day formulated a decree like the king of Nineveh and called his entire nation to repentance before a holy God? Wow. I don't think it will happen apart from God's people praying in humility. I want you to notice that phrase, then I will hear from heaven. God is saying that of himself. I will hear from heaven. I want you to go back now to Solomon's prayer just briefly as we conclude our sermon. And I want to show you where this phrase comes from. This is a repeated phrase that Solomon stated over and over in his dedicatory prayer. Look what it says. Let's just let our eyes go to verse 21. Solomon is praying. Now he got the picture. We already read it. He's on that bronze brass platform that is so many cubits wide, so many cubits long, so many cubits high. He's on his knees. The entire nation of Israel is around and he's praying. By the way, if you read the passage, as soon as he's done praying, fire falls from God, smoke goes everywhere and it's incredible. But right now he's dedicating the temple and this is the middle of his prayer and it's filled with conditional clauses. The if then, if this happens, then this. For example, verse 22, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven, you God, Solomon is speaking here, you God, please hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If then, if a man sins... Letter A under Roman numeral 3, prayer for national healing is essential. It's essential because you cannot bring conviction upon sinners. Only God can. And if God is going to preserve America, he has to convict hearts of sin, and people have to repent of their sin, or there is no hope. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. There is no other strategy for survival than people becoming convicted of their sins and repenting of their sin. And so letter A in your outline, Roman numeral three, is that we must pray for national healing because only God can soften hard, sinful hearts. There it is in verse 22. If a man sins, then please hear from heaven and act righteously. I mean, let your eyes go down to verse 26. Look what he says. When heaven, or if heaven, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain, remember this is Solomon praying, because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place, that's the temple, and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, sounds real familiar like our key verse today. If they acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them in the good way. Hear from heaven, hear from heaven. Verses 26 through 30 talks about God's control over nature, disease, and insects. He talks about if there is a famine, verse 28, if there is pestilence, if there is blight, if there is mildew, if there is locust or caterpillar, if our enemies besiege him at the gates, if there's a plague, whatever the sickness is, do you know that God uses calamity and plague and weather patterns to wake people up? I mean, we don't always know what's going on when there's no rain or there's too much rain or when there's a whole weekend of of earthquakes going on, one thing we need to know is that God is in control and that God is trying to get people's attention. 
And in Israel, he did this. And, and so we need to pray because we cannot control the rain. We cannot control the weather. We cannot control nature or disease or bug-infested fields that God can easily send to judge us for our sin. And so the only thing we can do is like Solomon begged, then hear from heaven and stop it. So we must be praying. Only God can soften hard, sinful hearts. Only God can control nature. Verse 34, give victory in battle. Only God can give victory in battle. Verse 36, the king's heart is spoken about here. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so they are carried away captive to a land or far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity. This is still Solomon's prayer ongoing. We have sinned and we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray towards their land which you gave their forefathers, the city that you have chosen, and pray towards the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas and maintain their causes and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And so on. Only God can direct the hearts of people and national leaders. Only God can direct someone's heart. And so we must pray. It's essential that we pray because only God can accomplish these things, change these things, turn these things and in, in similar ways that he did in Israel of old, I assure you we can see his hand at work around us. And there's principles here that we be praying that his hand... What do we take away from this message? The first thing I want you to see is that the blessing of God, the blessing of God is not found in political savvy or shrewdness. It is the result of humble God-fearing obedience. Do you know that in some ways, some ways, it really doesn't matter who the king is? It really doesn't matter what their strategies are. If they're not paying attention to God, if they haven't humbled their heart, if they haven't purified themselves from wickedness, if they have not acknowledged God and turned to him, then nothing really matters. What really matters for the blessing of God upon a people is not in any kind of political strategy or savvy or shrewdness. It is the result of humility and purity starting with God's church and then spreading in revival across the land in God-fearing obedience. That's what matters. That's why we must pray for our nation. Secondly, the blessing of God is directly linked to the hard attitude of the king. Solomon was a great king. When his heart was right with God, he wanted to honor God. He called for all the people to honor God. He slaughtered the greatest sacrifice for God ever. God accepted it. He built the temple for God. And God blessed them. When his heart turned away from God to foreign women and foreign gods and false gods, God removed his blessing. Do you pray for Donald Trump regularly? That he would have a tender heart for God? Whether you like him or not, whether you think he ought to keep talking or shut up, do you pray for his heart? Do you pray for Governor Justice's heart? that their heart would turn to God. We cannot turn a king's heart. We cannot change a governor's mind. We can only pray for God to grab their hearts. That's it. Thirdly, 
The blessing of God is directly related to the heart attitude and prayers of God's people. I assure you, God will not hold back his hand of judgment upon this sinful nation if his church isn't even praying. So we must be a church at prayer. To be a church at prayer, we must be a church that is purified and clean and humble before the Lord. And I can't think of any other setting where we are more humble and where we are more concerned about the condition of our heart than we partake, than when we partake of the elements, the broken bread representing our Lord's broken body in his act of salvation and going to the cross on our behalf, or when we hold the cup of juice representing the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Imagine the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one who was seated at the right hand of the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Imagine him coming to earth, putting on flesh, taking your sin and my sin upon himself and substituting in our place to pay the penalty that was demanded by a holy God for sin, and that is death. And the only way you can be relieved from your sin, the only way you can be relieved from the death penalty under which you sit is by running to the cross and there bowing in humility, confessing your sin and accepting God's free gift of salvation represented in Christ, shed blood and broken body. So Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine our hearts that we're in the faith that our faith and trust is in Christ, to examine our hearts that there not be any unconfessed sin there. And I think today, in light of this nation's birthday and the condition of this nation and the reminder of prayer, that we be asking God to purify his church, that we have an impact on this world. So let's sit quietly with our heads bowed, and the men will serve us with the bread, and the orchestra will play, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. We know that you see, we know that you hear, we believe that you care, we believe you will move. In Jesus' name we pray, committing ourselves to you till we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. The chairs stay down. Do not need stacked.